0: We believe in our business that kindness is one of the strongest, most important things that you should use in management. Kindness is a wonderful way to create a great business,
1: but a lot of people don't get that. Welcome to Good Business Talking, and I'm your host, Ravi Rai. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Sir John Tipson, author of 11 management books, a weekly contributor to The Telegraph the chair of the Timpson Group, and a board member of Barclays Bank here in the UK. In his career, John has seen a lot, multiple recessions, the demolishment of the retail industry through technology, as well as seeing his father being ousted from the board of directors of the company his father created. Despite all of that, he and his son, James, have grown the business from 145 repair shops in 1987 to 2,100 stores in 2020 across five different sectors. John and I spoke about a number of things, but the central theme we spoke a lot about was trust. Be it trust in headquarters, in letting go, even taking that point of sale equipment from stores and allowing stores to take control and even set price trust in allowing managers to hire for personality and then the managers trusting their people to create the best version of themselves without any metrics in sight and trust in letting the stores do what they think is best for the customer in other words trusting their judgment john has some very simple yet sage advice. I really loved his humility, the practicality, and his down-to-earth attitude on what it takes to make a business successful and be a force for good. I hope you like this as much as I did. So without further ado, let's get started. So John, Welcome to Good Business Talking. Thank you very much. Um, So, hey, can we start maybe by giving the listeners just a a short introduction about your background and how you've come to where you are today?
0: Well, for a start, well, I had a bit of a good start because my great-grandfather started a business in the 1860s, which was still going strong when when I was 17. Uh, And so I started, it was mainly a shoe shop business. I mean, whereas most people these days think of it as being shoe repairs, key cutting. And also now we do dry cleaning and we do photograph, photography and so on. My father, actually wanted me to work as an accountant. and I hated that. He gave up accountancy after six weeks. Then I worked for a year in the business. And while that was going on, I decided I'd go to university. Then after that, I got back into the business. So I've not done really anything else. Never had a job interview in my life. When I think about it, huh. I've never been interviewed as such, apart from, I suppose, very recently, for because I'm a director at uh, Barclays. Yeah. So I had sort of an interview for that because I was headhunted, but uh, no, never had a job interview. And but-
1: so, uh, if you go back, you know, there you are. You 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 have a family business, and so was it an expectation that you would come in and work there, or did you have any? thoughts or desires about doing something completely different? I
0: didn't. I can't recall a conversation where anyone said to me, do you want to are you going to this is what you've got to do and mm. never ever it was just sort of happened i mean mm. I, I never thought anything different was going to happen i wasn't given a choice really but i always wanted to as soon as i started to work in one of the shops as a shop assistant i was hooked on the whole idea of taking money really i like counting the money at the end of the day I'd never been that bothered about owning stuff it's a wonderful game, business really to play. I mean, okay, they're winners and losers, but uh, mm. it's actually playing the game, which is amazing fun most of the time, and then it has some very great difficulties. But uh, we've had our ups and downs. We had some really big downs along the way. Mm. I mean, the, the worst time was when my father was ousted from the chair by the rest of the board, and uh, we sold the business. You can't get much more down than that that was when i was about 27 right and i thought that was it i'd then have to find something else to do right but but i uh, i didn't really because the business that took me over gave me a job running another chain of shops for which i did for two years And then they asked me to go back and run the family business mm-hmm. so that was fine in the end i didn't see it quite that way at the time and then 10 years later we did a management buyout because the business I was working for sold out to another business. We bought it back. We, we sold the shoe shops, finished up with the shoe repair business, and I bought, bought out all the other shareholders. And it did come back as a 100% owned family business, which it has been since 1991. So we are in our 30th year as a totally owned family business.
1: Ah, what a story. I mean, it's so rare you hear that, right? Where it's been owned, then it's been taken out, and you're ousted out, and then it all comes back in. So, beautiful story.
0: Well, what you need is an enormous amount of luck to get there. And I had lots of luck along the way. Uh, like what? I'm curious. Well, I was the first high street shoe shop to, to sell out, but we had to sell the shoe shops to survive.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: and that was lucky, because... At mm-hmm. that time, there were about 70 different multiples on the high street mm-hmm. throughout the UK. So you had the whole of British Shoe Corporation, which had 28% of the market. Charles Claw's business with Saxon, Lillian Skinner, true Trueform, Freeman, Hardy and Willis, oh, wow! Sturtest, Manfield, all his. They're all gone. They went year 2000, 1999. They disappeared into Philip Green's hands for a time. Mm. Clark's is one of the few that's left, and they're now yep. really struggling. Not quite administration, but all but. Uh, so there's Russell and Bromley, and there's, well, there's, there's. There's a very few, very few. So Got it. I was lucky to get out of that.
1: I mean, I tell you what, though, John, as you speak, firstly, wow, you take me back when you name some of those brands. And I remember as a kid always going to Timpson's for our shoes. I remember that so vividly. You know which shop it was? It, well, I used to live in Barking in East London. Yeah, no, we had a shop in Barking. Yeah, It was right next door, next door to the McDonald's there. I remember that really. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: I remember when what, what in Barking.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and, but you know what? It's interesting when you talk about you've had a lot of luck. See, as I hear what you just said, I think it's a very humble that you said it was luck. I think some there's a lot of stuff there, I think, actually is a creation of who you are and what you've done. Well,
0: 1987, when we, we sold the shoe shops, we had... 145 little shoe repair outlets, making 350,000 pounds a year, something like that. Wow! But it was it was a small business, and it was really a, going to be a hobby, just give me something to do. Didn't work out like that, really. And <laughs> suddenly we were, we worked out that we had to grow. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep the people with us. They thought I was going to sell that as well. So we bought one of the competitors and we managed to get an amazing deal to buy the third biggest. We were the second biggest in a competition with our big competitor by the the market leader. Mm. And they failed to bid enough. And then we bought the big competitor in the end. Gradually grown the business like that, and then decided to acquire other businesses.
1: How big is it? How many outlets you have? How many staff? Can you give a sense of the scale and the size and the complexity of the business as it stands today?
0: Firstly, I won't talk about staff. I always talk about colleagues.
1: Hmm, okay.
0: Because staff always, we always feel that staff makes it feel like a them and us situation, whereas we're all colleagues. We all work together. At the moment, uh, in the end of January 2021, we've got big lockdown. Half our shops are closed because the photo shops are not allowed to open because they're uh, non-essential. And the level of activity has got so low. We've got about half of them open. It's a little bit more than half. We're we're opening a few more now. But overall, we've got 2,100 shops. The biggest part of the business is called Timson. Then we've got another business called Johnson's The Cleaners. And we have uh, a vending business, self-service photo machines in supermarkets, and also passport photo booths. Hmm. Uh, We've got another photo business called Snappy Snaps. And then we have got a very small number of barber shops in supermarket car parks. uh, And we've got a chain of
1: locksmiths. I think that's just about it. Wonderful. So now, before we get into the business side of things, um, I wanted to get into a little bit about understanding your values. I understand you, you and your wife fostered 90 kids uh, in your life. And and not only that, you know, 10% of your workforce is made up now of ex-offenders. Um, so where, that, where does that intention, belief or value come from?
0: It's not totally correct that uh, I fostered 90 children with my wife. This ninety is correct, but it was my wife Alex that did about 80, 80 to ninety percent of the work, and I was mm. just sort of around. I, right. I did I did a bit of part time at weekends and uh, the odd bedtime stories or whatever you're allowed to do in those days. Um, but and a lot of the values came from her started from her she's just got a buzz out of helping other people particularly anything to do with children was she was up for that and so we fostered 90 children we adopted two more and then she she became a home start volunteer and got to know quite a few more and uh, she spent a lot of her life sat exactly where I am now at the kitchen table with phone in hand and it was like an all day surgery or 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 helpline. I mean, people calling her, wanting help, then she'd chase her up, she'd be talking to lawyers or talking to whoever it is to to sort out someone's problem. That was what she loved doing. And that rubbed off, certainly, on uh, James, who now runs runs a business. And uh, James has been running it for mm, not far off 20 years now. He absolutely lives the looking after the people side of the business. and he's, He's... Very like his mother in many
1: ways, Mm.
0: the values. I think also they go back to my grandfather in particular, who I knew, who grew the shoe shop business from 30 shops to 260 shops and did all the property deals himself, went around the country, but also he knew the people. He ran the business. He didn't do it on a dictatorial way. He didn't do it by of, on the numbers. He obviously regarded them as, as an extended family. That was the way he ran the thing. I was there when he was doing it, going around. He, he'd chat to the people he'd walk around, and not just sort of uh, being polite. He hmm. knew them, and he knew their family. And so a lot came from him, I think. And that made a big difference to the way the business operated. So. It was from him that my father did the same, that I learned you spend at least a day a week going around shops and don't just go and see the the one around the corner from the office every week. You go around and you see as many people as possible. So still do that.
1: And, And is that something you can, do you think you can build that in people, in management and leadership, or is that inherent within your DNA?
0: I think... You've got to have a little bit of a spark there to get going. There are some people who just don't get it. I mean, We believe in our business that kindness is one of the strongest, most important things that you should use in management. Kindness is a wonderful way to create a great business. But a lot of people don't get that. A lot of people think that management is is all about structures and processes policies and processes and making sure that everything everyone follows the process as long as all that happens all will be well mm. and it doesn't happen that's why projects overrun that's why they you know it costs so much to build this or do the other it doesn't work to just put the whole thing on paper and expect it to happen mm. things are created by people going back to that and if you don't get that in the first place I don't think you can run a business like James runs a business.
1: I mean, that's really interesting what you say, because, you know, if I, if, if we rewind the clock all the way back to Adam Smith when he wrote, you know, The Wealth of Nations, and he's talking about the role of business and what it does for society, and I now hear you talking about kindness. What, what, what happened? Why are we in a place now where the focus is on process? How did we lose our way?
0: I think governance, risk management, or... Um, the belief that they you've got a control from the centre, as soon as you do that, you've lost the heart of the business, in my view. And government, they believe that they are there to make policy mm-hmm. that they they actually put the policy into practice by by creating a process that makes it happen. that that's that's the way civil servants uh, government departments do it and it's exactly the same in r- most big businesses that it's the center that that fear they have got to control it this is why they love the idea of all this big data stuff mm-hmm. so we can measure everything they would even want to measure kindness that's where it all goes wrong it's not realizing what the center is there for mm-hmm they think they're running the running the organisation. The head offices do not run the business. Head office creates the strategy, which is really the chief executive, the chairman, the board's job, and they also lead the culture. They communicate the culture. They set the style. But what they shouldn't be doing is telling everybody how to put that strategy into practice. Mm. You describe the strategy, you hire the right people and say please do it for us. Mm. The rest of the head office, if you call it that, we don't, the rest of the head office is there to support the people out in the field who are actually put the strategy into practice. You're there to make life easy for them, to take the obstacles out of the way, give them the support they need, give them the tools to do the job, but you don't tell them what to do and you don't get in the way. By measuring things all the time and and making sure that they have to do it the way that you want to do it when which is, which is quite arrogant really it, there, there's this assumption that everyone in the office is that's where the fountain of all knowledge <laughs> the fact that people who know most about whatever you're doing in the business are the people out there who are doing it just say you do it just let me know if you need any help
1: that requires and it comes back full circle to where i wanted to kind of dig deeper in with you is this whole thing around the importance of trust. You can only do that if you trust people out in the field, right?
0: Yes, but I cannot see the point. I mean, why why employ people you don't trust? I mean, what's that about? You know, a lot of the systems that organisations put in are there to to cope with the 2%, 3% of people they don't trust. I mean, one of the things that I've done, and people think I'm totally mad. We we bought a lot of businesses, a lot of chains, mainly out of administration, and all all retail chains pretty well. And the first, just about the first thing we do every time is throw out the point of sale tills, because by having a control of that till, which is operated by computer from head office, you're handing over the control of that shop to head office. Suddenly, I found we bought one business. We bought talking to the guy. They said they've changed the prices today. But he turns up on a Monday morning and finds that the the price of his uh, key cutting has gone up by five percent because someone's pressed a button at the office to say that's the new price list. He's got no control. She's got no control of what's happening in their shop mm. because they're not trusted. So instead of trusting people, you spend you run the business. On the basis of we're going to put all the systems to make sure that we can cope with the people we don't trust whereas what i think you should be doing is just employ people you do trust and if you don't trust someone get rid of them
1: conceptually i'm completely with you uh, and it's a very humane way of running a business i get that now you may well have that as an overarching organizational objective How do you then have any level of confidence or or maybe the right word is comfort that everyone is heading in the direction of achieving those numbers if you're then allowing them to order what they want and price at whatever level they want um, and you're not tracking that. So help me understand, how how do you figure out that tension? Well, it's
0: really terribly simple. In our business, all our shops need to do to be successful is to do a fantastic job, like the shoes that look great and stay together, keys that work, watches that work. Mm. Been, that's that's the one bit. And the other bit is to be nice to the customers. You can't do any better than that. Mm. I don't need any market research. I've got to be nice to everybody. Mm. pretty straightforward. Then I realized 25 years ago, a bit more, that that customer the training bits pretty important, very important to get people with the skills so we have training to do that but then this customer service bit the only way you can do that is to trust the people working the shops with the freedom to look after every customer the best way they possibly can. You can't give great service on a set of rules. I mean you'll get McDonald's sort of service, which is okay. You get a nice, smiling assistant and so on. But it's not fantastic service. To me, fantastic service is you get the one-off customer. You get a very different sort of recovery. Awkward customers, difficult customers, difficult jobs, extraordinary sort of things happening.
1: And Let me hold you there for a second. Let me give you an experience I had of Timpsons literally a couple of months ago. So I, I go in to one of your stores and I needed a key cut for my external back door. So it's quite a unique, apparently, a unique frame. So I go into, so I said, hey, can you make me one of these? He goes, um, I don't know if we've got that, if we can, but let me give it a go. So he cuts me up one and I says, "Uh, "Okay, so how much are you? He goes, nothing. He says, look, if it doesn't work, it's fine. You haven't had a wasted visit to come back and get your money back. If it works, whenever you're available, come back and pay me for it. And I'll tell you what, I have mentioned that to at least three other mm. people since. So I, I, and the reason I want to hold you off is just that I've personally had that ex- amazing experience where it very unexpectedly says, here's your key, don't pay me for it. If it works, come back at some point because I trust you as a customer. Mm. Well, they can only do that
0: if you say, right, you're in charge of the shop. You do what you feel is right for every customer. Mm. That includes the price. Mm. And it certainly happens many times a week that someone in one of our uh, photo shops, is someone's someone's in there getting some photos done, getting them framed, and then somehow you get the get the idea that it's for a funeral. Yeah. For their husband's funeral. Mm. So you say, well, just I don't want to charge you for this. I just like to say, I hope the day goes well and I hope this makes the right contribution to it. End of story. Beautiful. Now what's how what's that do for the business?
1: Yeah. Versus the few quid margin you're gonna make on it. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so we've we've actually now gone as far as asking,
1: uh, hoping,
0: but we don't have KPIs, so they'd have to do anything asking every every branch every day to do a random act of kindness doesn't mean have to be giving things away it might be carrying stuff to the car or whatever it might be but people remember when someone goes the extra mile and as soon as you say that that's the way we want to do business that tells you quite a lot about the sort of people you want working there. because There are some people who it's not natural to, they don't find it natural to do that. I want people who do find that the way to to go about it. Mm. And also people who like helping other people uh, get a real buzz out of coming to work when they're free to do it.
1: It's interesting. You remind me of a book I read recently by a couple of brothers called Dan and Chip Heath. The book's called The Power of Moments. And it's exactly what you described. Create those moments for customers where they just don't expect it. And what that then does in terms of quality, feel good factor for you as a business, which you can't actually quantify necessarily, but it's definitely there.
0: Yeah. I mean, our shops all I mean, particularly the ones outside supermarkets, all look exactly the same. Mm. They're pods. They're literally made like pieces of the pot, they're pods. Yep. But they're all different to me. The difference is who's inside it the personality of our shop is the person there and i get this when i meet someone where we don't meet anyone these days but uh are doing a lockdown but meet someone dinner a party whatever and they say oh i've been to one of your shops you know god you're gonna hear and they always always talk about the people mm. They don't talk about what job was done. There was a guy in there who says, got long hair, whatever. He was fantastic. Or mm. She was great. And we don't advertise. We don't spend a penny on advertising. And I told you, you to go do market research. What better advertising than having your people wowing the customers by doing things that they repeat to other, that like you said you've done?
1: and what i understand it was never all it wasn't always that way right um it was oh, no, it
0: was we had standing orders for shoe repair factories and everyone had to do every job the same way open the shop the same way they had to look exactly everything was standard
1: so it was clearly a conscious choice you made to shift so can you tell me what it was like it might be helpful for those ceos and owners of businesses that want to shift to this more trusting Empowered um um style of management.
0: Okay. Well first off I thought this was this this is gonna be fantastic. Everyone will get this because <laughs> I've got this idea that our success depends on how good our services to customers. Free up the people out in the shops to give the best service they possibly mm. can. And no, like, oh I don't, I don't want to change that. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. So no, you can do whatever you want. And I was preaching this. But what I didn't realize is that pretty well every time I went, went away from a shop, the area manager would be on the phone and say, well, don't you do what John told you. You work for me. I'm the area manager. You do mm. what I say. Mm. And that was problem number one. Uh, we were inventing a different way of being a boss, really. Mm. And the first thing we said, you can't tell anyone what to do. There's no orders. Your job, you you achieve it. By looking after the people in your team, you are there to help them to be great.
1: How on earth do you get people to embrace or even be wanting to take on that new way of managing? That's, uh, that's a behavioral it, shift, right?
0: Yeah, it, 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 it was a big change. And that's, that's what took five years. It meant changing the way we recruited, and it meant saying goodbye to the underperformers. We we couldn't wait for the HR way of lots of warning letters and uh, performance management programs and other things. When you got people who were basically uh, turning up late, complaining when they were there, and uh, upsetting the people, the great people who got what work- they were working alongside. So our phrase was, "We had a conversation." a part of friends' conversation, which was right. to help them nicely, generously, but quickly to find their happiness working elsewhere.
1: Hmm.
0: Ideally, we want a business that's full of people who rate 9 or 10 out of 10. And we also want to have a business that all gets the whole culture we're talking about. And we recognize that there were lots of talented people already in the business who were ready to step up to the next level. So we grow all our own management. We don't employ anyone into a management role from outside other than specialists in computer departments and finance departments, that sort of thing. The whole of our field management is done by people who started as an apprentice in one of our shops. Hmm. We work very hard to make sure everyone understands the culture. Hmm. Uh, And so now, 25 years on, everyone's got
1: it. You know what's really interesting, what you just said that John? The big thing for me is this is not something that you can turn a switch on and, you know, within this financial year, you've got an improvement in this. Uh, This is a long-term play.
0: I think one of the most important things we did was to... uh, actually describe what that management role was to tell people how to be a great boss.
1: Oh, tell us, what is that description?
0: I've written a little little book about it, but basically you don't tell people what to do. You, you've got to pick the right people. Yeah. You pick people on their personality. Don't bother about anything else, get the right personality and they'll be able to do everything else for you. Your job is to help them to be the best they could possibly be. So you spending your time looking after the people are in your team, and when I say looking after them, 50% of that looking after it may well be nothing to do with the business. What do you mean? Well, well, because one of your jobs as a boss, big job, is to clear obstacles out the way, right? I learned something at the beginning of lockdown. I went to Lancaster, and uh, the shoe shop, the shoe repair shop we got there, was being run and is run six days a week by Laura. Laura was taking them between six and seven thousand pounds a week which is an amazing amount wow. of money wow what do you think that laura is serving all the customers she's doing all the jobs so she's repairing the shoes cutting the keys what me, me, mending watches she's doing the display she's doing the order uh she's completing uh what paperwork they have is not that much these days yep. uh she's doing the tidying up, hoovering the floor, unlocking it in the, in the morning, locking up at night, maybe dealing with queries that come her way. She's doing the lot. So I said to her, how do you do it? And, she said, she, and this is a, one of those sort of light bulb moments. And I said, well, it's easy. Everything's on a plate for me. I pick up the phone. They answer it. My key machine breaks down. Within a couple of hours, I'll have a new one here. Every time I've got a problem, it gets sorted. I don't have to do anything beyond what I need to do to look after those customers. Wow. Now, that was a big, I thought that was a big learning. So that's
1: really taken servant leadership to another level. So not only are the managers there to serve them, you're now saying the role of head office, corporate, whatever you want to call it, or Timpson House, is that service. Exactly. That's what it's there for.
0: Mm. It's there to make sure Laura's life is as easy as possible so that she can put all her efforts into doing what she's there to do, to do a great job for the customer. She's not there to supply information back so you can monitor this, monitor the other. Uh, She's not, and you don't tell her. She knows how to run that shop in Lancaster.
1: Do you guys budget? And what I mean by that is if you're allowing the stores to run completely autonomously, pricing-wise, margin-wise, stock-wise, um, you know, you, you have a revenue and a margin number from last year. How do you decide what you are targeting this year and next year? Do you decide at all? Um, because no, we, of- don't.
0: Right. we don't. have tar- We don't have targets. I mean, mm. last year is good enough for me. I, I learned that years and years ago when – the guy who fired my father, the uncle, introduced a system which uh, was called Management by Objectives.
1: Yep, MBO, yep, know it.
0: And, oh, they went ages. Every shop had to have a target for every section of the business for every week of the year. So Laura would have to come up with a target for shoe repairs, key cutting for week one, week two, week three, and so on. Then they had to monitor again, so lots of monitoring things and reporting and so on. The thought was that if you do that, everyone's focused on target, all will be well. So what happened was that we came to week one, Mm -hmm. and they didn't quite make target. Yep. And they didn't make target in week two or three either. Yep. So... Then someone says, oh, hang on a minute, we're, we're now, we've got a shortfall.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I know where slipp- this is going.
0: <laughs> there's slippage. So what we're going to have to do, because we've got, we've got to make the profit, because that's what the target is. So what we'll have to do is to increase the margin. So we'll shove up a few prices here. and So they move up the prices, which has the result. Of reducing the sales a bit, <laughs> so week five, six, seven, still with this slippage, and so the whole thing ends up. We bought all the stock for this new, the new target, so it all finishes up with a lot of clearance shops at the end of the day and the complete disaster.
1: Cycle of doom.
0: Yeah, I mean it's unbelievable. No, we don't have to, we don't have targets at all. We we measure everything against last year.
1: What's my motivation to do better? How do you keep oh. me? excited
0: energized you're working in the pod yeah how do you keep me excited energized well there's something called the weekly bonus okay and our weekly bonus is the same calculation in every shop every week of the year we add up all the wages paid we multiply that by four and a half because that's the figure that works and that sets your target turnover for the week okay everything over that target you get 15 percent. okay now if you have someone else there of course the target goes up quite a lot and the 15 get percent gets split between you and someone else so you don't really want anyone else there if you could help it Mm. and uh, if you're on your own and you're taking like laura she would be earning a lot of money on that Mm. also if we've got more than one person there the bonuses split between them according to their skill level because we've got a whole training scheme which starts with the uh, apprenticeship right through to level one level one in every skill then level two in every skill and the more le- more skills you've got the bigger percentage of the bonus you get so there's incentive to learn yep. incentive to take money and incentive to keep the, the wage, wages down
1: what you say sounds incredibly commonsensical i know that you've done a whole bunch of speeches to business leaders and forums in the past And one of the things that you mentioned that you've somewhat dismayed about, you know, nodding heads in the audience, but then a lack of action. What do you think stops a CEO or owner doing what you say? What gets in the way?
0: Well, funny enough, it's people that get in the way. Um, Although the answer is to do with people, but it's people that won't let you do it because it's totally against the way that everyone's taught to run a business. It's counterintuitive. It's not. Mm. It's not seen as professional management. You can't do that. Surely you've got budgets and you've got KPIs and you've got to control everything.
1: So let's say we you know you're sitting across the table as I'm sure you do, with your role at Barclays, you know, and Matt Hammerstein's across the table from you. Well, um, well, he,
0: well, he was actually at where you are today. He was, yes,
1: yesterday. (laughs) Okay, there you go. So that's you and Matt having a chat. And what could Matt do practically in 2021 to pivot Barclays to becoming a business that has a more trusting, empowering workforce that provides, you know, the kind of customer service that you get from Simpsons? What, What are the one or two things that you would say, if I was Matt right now, I would do these two things in 2021?
0: Trying to make sure that people might feel much freer. Instead of reading off a script, talk, talk to the customer and find out what they really want. And mm-hmm. you have the freedom to, to do it. And give people more ownership so they're not having to say, well, I have to come back to you on that. Right. It, it, it's, it's looking at how we can free people up so that they're, they're free to really give customer the service just in one conversation
1: yeah so uh, i'm hearing freedom in two perspectives freedom from bureaucracy and escalation and freedom to get on and do it and solve the issue for the client yeah that's right absolutely got it now looking back from where you are now what would you say would have been one or two things you would have done differently in hindsight that would have helped accelerate your journey or eased the pain of you transforming the culture and getting your upside down management in so what could have either accelerated it or made it easier for you to get that in place
0: nearly always the thing that would make a difference is if we said goodbye to some of the people quicker
1: mm-hmm.
0: the are buts, the people who gave you the reasons why it's not going to work yeah in the end you'd be better off to say goodbye
1: mm-hmm
0: course they say well you've got no one challenging you that can't be good you don't hire anyone from outside well, that's not good it's very good for the cultural business to have lots of new people coming in rubbish one thing that uh, we do have one measurement which I, I I think's very important we have a thing called the happy index okay which is once a year, we get everybody just on um, one question, one piece of paper, not, on, not, not a computer question. We like pieces of paper. We would have a pen or pencil. And the question is, on a scale of one to ten, how do you rate the support you get from your area team or from your boss, depending on the situation? Yeah, and we also do it actually uh, from the field people on a scale of one to ten. How do you rate the support you get from the um, colleague support department from the customer support department from the uh, development department from whatever they only go to guy who's uh, our director of colleague support and james they're the only ones who actually see the comments brilliant
1: what it's a great, great way to end it i mean that, that's a lovely i think articulation of an ethos i think in what you've built there in timpson the happy index Really simply, on a scale of one to ten, how do you rate the support that you're getting? Where can I point my listeners to learn more about your uh, ethos and your approach to management?
0: Have a chat with the person in any of our shops. Most of them know about it. Well, I've written written a few books on it. Funny enough, one's called Upside Down Management. There you go. And, and then. Keys to success. Those two books are, 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 the, okay. are the main management ones. Sure. Then there's regular stuff in the Telegraph on a Monday.
1: Perfect. And you know, I've picked up a couple of those books from the pods. I think the last one I was reading was the one around mental health, uh, which was yeah. beautifully articulated.
0: Those books on mental health and about attachment to do with kids—they're all free.
1: It's a very generous gift you're giving out. So I appreciate it. So pick up a book at the store. Talk to someone at the store. Um, check you out on the Telegraph. And then I know you've written a whole bunch of other books.
0: But they'll get them off our website.
1: Perfect. Which is timpson.co.uk? Yeah, fine. Cool. John, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nice, nice, Nice to talk to you. Wow. So much to get out of that conversation with John. A few things that really resonated with me. Number one, just his simplified view of leadership. And there's really two tasks Number one, hire the best people you can. And number two, support those people to be the best they can be. And he talked about that superstar colleague in one of the stores, how she said, I get everything I need on a plate. How can I not perform well? And the one metric that he's truly passionate about is the happy index, which measures how well you feel supported in your role. Two, there is a long history from his grandfather, his father, him and now his son having an inherent interest in getting to know their people and their families, because it's those people you're trusting the success of the business to. And three, it took them initially five years to start to pivot to a new style of upside down leadership. And it was scrappy, a quarter of a century later, they are where they wanna be in terms of culture, values, norms, and behaviors. It's clear, cultural transformation is a long-term game. You're going to need the backbone, heart, and resilience to see it through. That's it from me today. Thanks for checking in. And if you found this podcast episode interesting, insightful in any way, I'd love it if you would share. Recommendation is the best form of marketing. So even if you share with one other person, you're helping me fulfill my purpose, And that's letting the world know that businesses are and can be a force for good and for that as always i will forever be grateful until the next episode take care of yourself and those that you lead
0: this was hosted by ravi rai you can connect with ravi on linkedin or on twitter at ravi fpc this series is sponsored by four points consulting we make change happen with conscience and with purpose
1: check us out at www.fourpoints.net
0: that's www.fourpoints.net